This is about as comfortable as it gets. It's still not that comfortable though. It's summer. Every time I try to walk back to my cabin, several dozen or hundreds of uh, insects try to make a meal out of me. There's uh, whippoorwills uh, that come and make a noise outside my cabin every night. Really loud. It's almost like someone uh, setting off a car alarm outside my window. And this is a monastery. Things are really quiet. Things are really peaceful. So, but even so, it's not always it's not always what you want, is it? We have to we have to tolerate conditions in our lives. We don't get to control everything. We have limited means of control. So we can do things like open the window, turn on the fan. But then we have to just accept that's the limit of what we can do. A lot of our circumstances in our lives are like that. We do the best we can, but even so, things don't go the way we want. We don't get to keep the things that we like. We don't keep to. We don't uh, necessarily get to avoid the things that we don't like. We don't get to have what we want. Not always. In a way, the partial successes that we have keep the game going. It's uh, it's hard to completely surrender when you think that there's some chance that you can still get your way. Uh, and also the promise of future comfort or future happiness can uh, keep the game going of uh, trying to manipulate conditions so that you can get what you want. And this, uh, this can obscure the, the, the more important truth, which is the truth of the things the way they are, the things that uh, we can't control and the, the, the fact that our life really isn't up to us entirely. We have some influence, we certainly do, and that influence we should use. But the truth is, uh, we don't know how long we'll live. We don't know who will come into our lives. We don't know who presently in our lives will suddenly vanish. We don't know. Our minds don't like uncertainty. We don't like uncertainty. We like to think that we know what's going to happen. And we like to feel like we're in control. And maybe at a certain point in development, a sense of mastery, a sense of having some autonomy, control. It's a very important step in developing a healthy sense of self, a healthy sense of boundaries, um, a basic sense of safety and happiness in the world. But as we grow older, we see that it's somewhat illusory, 
this sense of everything is okay in a conventional sense. Because in a conventional sense, everything is not okay. You know, we're, we're going to die. <laughs> we're doomed. And so in that sense, it's, uh, it's all very tragic. So the Dhamma, um, what the Buddha is teaching, is to start with a, a very, very high regard for truth. Truth in direct and immediate experience, truth that we can see in our own lives, in our own minds, here and now. And the truth very often is we get frustrated. We don't get to have what we want, or we have to put up with something that we don't want. We're uncomfortable. The mind does all kinds of things. It gets moody, uh, it gets greedy, it gets angry, it gets anxious. All these different kinds of things can come into the mind. And they're all disturbing. And we might wish it were different, but that's just not entirely up to us. And because this is true, uh, if we want to do anything good about it, it's best to acknowledge that. The other truth, however, is the flip side of all this. Uh, by that I mean, well, I'll, just as an example, I uh, recently have been trying to memorize some chanting. That's one of the things you do when you're a monk. You, you chant and you memorize chanting. And it's a wonderful thing. And when I was younger, uh, when I first started off, I could, I could load chanting into my head like, like uh, putting a cassette tape into a player. I could almost just cram, you know, two or three minutes of chanting in my head in the morning and another two or three minutes in the afternoon. And I could memorize a pretty long chant fairly quickly. But then after about a year or so, I noticed I started having a limit on how much. It's almost like my mind wasn't, wasn't interested in picking up a whole lot of new chanting. And so I had a new kind of daily limit on how much chanting I could memorize and uh, be able to keep it. It's one of the things I noticed is the faster I memorized it, the more tenuous my grip on it was. So I developed a new style of learning how to chant. I, I became very methodical and careful, and I, I could find that I could load maybe about 60 seconds worth of chanting per day that I could keep. Now I'm down to about 20 seconds a day. So if I try to memorize more than 20 seconds of chanting in a given day, I won't be able to keep it. It'll, it'll get rusty really quick. So I have to be very... So, um, but the good news is, is despite my, you know, my age and how things are going, I can still train my mind. And that's what memorization really is. It's a kind of training. So you, you decide that you're going to memorize something and you start paying attention to the phrases and repeating them to yourselves and seeing if you can close your eyes and re recollect them and then, you know, wait 60 seconds and see if you can re recollect it again and then wait five minutes and see if you can still recollect it. And maybe in the meantime do something else. And so there's all these little techniques. And sure enough, you know, almost no matter how old you get, you can still learn, uh, you can still learn new things. 
And what's also true is this stuff that you learned a long time ago, if you don't reinforce it, it fades away. So the chants that I learned when I was at Abayagiri, that we typically chanted when we were there, we don't typically chant them here. There's some chants that we chant there that we don't chant here, and so those chants have gotten weaker, and I, can, I can't really remember them very well. I know if I continue to ignore them, they'll, uh, they'll fade away entirely. Well, not entirely, but they'll get really, really weak. And so this, this kind of works to our advantage. It seems like a disadvantage, but it actually works to our advantage. We can actually train our minds to cultivate not just memorizing words and phrases, but actually to cultivate moods. We can cultivate uh, moods like equanimity. Peacefulness in the midst of difficulty. Acceptance in the midst of difficulty. We can cultivate things like loving kindness. So friendliness towards all beings. And uh, compassion. Uh, a wish for the, the non-suffering of other beings. And it's amazing. You know, you can just decide to, when you're meeting a new person, you can just decide to be as friendly as you can be. You know, try to take a very sympathetic attitude towards that new person and um, treat them as though uh, they're a, like a long-lost relative or something and just really be nice to them. And when you make a decision like that, you find that you can actually do. Maybe, maybe that's not your natural habit, but you can find that if you make the intention, you can actually be more friendly than you ordinarily are. And you might have noticed that if you decide that you hate somebody, that you can be sort of colder and shorter and snippier uh, than you might otherwise be. So the mind is, the mind is malleable. It's, it's, it's trainable. It's directable. And everything that you practice doing, you get better at. So you get better at chanting. You get better at meeting new circumstances with, a, with an open heart, with friendliness. Uh, you can get better at um, just being uh, peaceful in the midst of difficulty, of not of not getting excited, not not uh, stressing out, not feeding anxiety, not worrying. It's a possible. It's actually possible to do these things. And when you reinforce those kinds of mental habits, you're necessarily abandoning the mental habits that go in the opposite direction. So unkindness, unfriendliness, uncalmness. Uh, these aren't getting reinforced. And just like old chants that are slowly fading away, the habit of those mind states gets weaker over time. So this is the, uh, uh, this is the upside, you could say, of aging. As time passes, we can literally forget to how, to, how to be the person that we used to be. And we get in the habit of being the person that we want to be, that we prefer to be. But the only way to get there, it's just like learning a new chant. If you really want to be able to chant a new passage of chanting very smoothly and eloquently and unhesitatingly, you just have to do it over and over and over and over again. Um, but it, re it yields a very concrete result. 
So at one point, um, I couldn't chant, say, the Metta Sutta. I, you know, I could read it, but I, I certainly couldn't chant it. I couldn't chant it in English, and I couldn't chant it in Pali. Later, after practicing, I could chant in both, both languages. I can chant the Metta Sutta. So now that's like a resource. If I'm doing walking meditation and my mind won't hold still, I can just say, okay, I'm going to do some recitation. I'll just recite the, the Metta Sutta to myself and see if that will inspire me. And because I've memorized it, it's right there. It's like having this incredible little chunk of Dhamma lodged in my mind uh, more or less reliably that I can bring up at any moment in its entirety. I just get this chant started and the whole thing sort of unwinds in my, in my mind. That's how memorized chanting works. You almost don't need to worry about whether the phrases will come back. They just come back by themselves. The same thing can be for mind states. Uh, mind states, uh, even moods, you don't get to fully control it, but you can train the mind to abandon, abandon things which you know are unwholesome. And you can train the mind to cultivate things which you know are wholesome. And when you do this, you simply improve. And at some point, you'll be able to look back and go, in a given circumstance, and in a time gone past, I would have reacted in such and such a way that would have been painful, unwholesome. And now, in that very similar circumstance, I can see that I'm able to react in this other completely new way and the only reason I am able to do that is because of that practice, because of those efforts that I made. And that's wonderful. It's a wonderful resource to have, having trained yourself to abandon something which is unwholesome. So uh, just like chanting, if you want to learn how to chant something, you have to have the text available to you somehow in an external way. And this is where... Uh, it can be a little, a little challenging with Dhamma practice. You have to have the text available of how, like, so to speak. You, you need an example of what counts as a wholesome way of conducting yourself that you can memorize, as it were, practice with. And the Buddha offers us a lot of examples. And you can think of, you can certainly think of examples in your own life, and your own life is your best teacher. So, what you do is uh, you take on the you, you sort of make a commitment that every day, at some point during the day, hopefully sort of near the end of the day, I'm going to look back at how things went and ask myself if there's anything that went badly that I could have, I, I wish I might have done better. Maybe uh, you dodged the responsibility that you really probably should have taken on. Maybe you were kind of cool to somebody who could have used your kindness. Maybe you were uh, a little too quick to take a parking space that somebody else might have wanted. Uh, maybe you were too greedy and feeding yourself. Not too greedy in the sense that it's evil to feed yourself, but maybe you are um, setting aside mindfulness in order to indulge in gratification without mindfulness. 
None of these things are really criminal. They're not that big of a deal. But if you're here at the monastery, you're already practicing. And usually our practice is a matter of finding where our, our, our practice edge is and seeing like, what could I do that would be just a little bit, a little bit more, a little bit beyond the current edge. And so find your current edge and ask yourself whether or not uh, if that same circumstance were to arise again, you might wish you could do it differently. And then just imagine yourself doing it differently. So if you said something harsh, imagine yourself in that same circumstance, keeping your mouth shut, or maybe saying something neutral, maybe even something sort of ambiguous, but not something harsh. And then just tell yourself, next time this sort of thing comes up, that's what I want to do. This is mental training. You're, you're like, you're, it's almost like you're pre-programming the response that will be available to you in the future. The way to actually have that come about in the future is to cultivate um, a sense of care, almost like sacredness of what happens in your mind, an interest in it. The mind is where everything goes right, and the mind is where everything goes wrong. And so the only way that you can really do anything about it is to pay attention to it. The reason to pay attention to it is because that's where all change takes place. All improvements for the better and all deteriorations for the worse take place in the mind. The mind that's carefully attended to, like a garden plot that you're depending on for your future food, that will yield good results. A mind that is... Uh, sort of allowed to run wild, uh, left to the weeds, as it were. That mind doesn't improve. The mind just sticks in its old ruts and its old habits. This is a, a another way of looking at the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path starts with right view and right intention. So right view means something like a view that actions produces results, that there is such a thing as causality, that what happens now will affect the future, that what happened in the past is affecting the present. If you don't take, it, take that seriously, then you tend to be living in something of a kind of magical thinking land thinking that other people are making things happen in your life, or thinking that external circumstances control what happens. But right view recognizes that what I do with my mind is what conditions how I will experience the future. Right intention is the intention to condition in a, in a wholesome way. So the, the, the intention of non-cruelty, non-ill will, non-greed, non-delusion, these intentions, <laughs> are the basis of conditioning the mind in a wholesome way. So then you, uh, you undertake uh, right speech, which is speech which is free of falsehood, free of, of, of uh, um, any kind of evil intent, any kind of unwholesome intent. So that's a non-divisive speech, 
Uh, there's, there's plenty of, of teachings about right speech. But the reason that you do right speech is because of right view and right intention. And because you're trying to cultivate a mind that's wholesome and happy. If you're doing those things, and of course you're also undertaking uh, right action, right livelihood. These are, these are just appropriate ways of conducting yourself with your, with your body and with, your, uh, with the way that you make a living. That's all going to involve the same sorts of principles. And to do this requires effort. Right effort. Right effort is simply the effort to, it's a fourfold effort, the effort to bring about wholesome states that are not currently present. The effort to sustain any wholesome states that are currently present. So a wholesome state can just be something like calmness, um, uh, kindliness, friendliness, mindfulness is a wholesome state. The intention to do good is a wholesome state. So supporting, like cultivating these states and then trying to keep them going, those are two of the four right efforts. The other two are just their opposites. Abandoning unwholesome states which are present. So if the mind is angry, try to find out how to abandon that anger. If the mind is frustrated or, or uh, unhappy for any reason, try to find out why and see if you can let go of it. And then the last one is simply to uh, do what you can to prevent unwholesome states that are not currently present, to prevent them from arising. So if you know that your mind has a tendency in certain directions that are unwholesome, then you do what you can to pre prevent your mind from getting provoked into those states. So if you have a, uh, an, a tendency, say, towards greed for ice cream on hot summer days that you're trying to do something about, just to use a kind of a trivial example, there's nothing wrong with ice cream, there's nothing wrong with eating ice cream, but more along the lines of uh, uh, unmindful um, gorging in order to try to get something out of it. Um, if you know that that's a weakness that you have, and you know we all have these kinds of uh, tendencies in our psyches, then it's not that hard to just avoid going there. Once you're actually there, then it's much harder to kind of reel it in. So it's, it's easier just to sort of avoid the thing that creates problems rather than try to fix it once the problems start to arise. So uh, like wise people avoid, say for example, getting into debates about politics if they know that tends to provoke a lot of anguish and anger and dismay and despair in their minds. Because you can't really do anything about politics. You can't really convince anybody of anything. So why go there? Just avoid going there. And then, uh, with this mind, with this effort, uh, one's bringing mindfulness to what's going on. You're simply paying attention to what happens in the mind, what happens in your life, with this correct, with this good intention, this intention to try to cultivate what's worthwhile. And then every, every time you see the opportunity, you, you kind of try to intervene in a, in a good way. If your mind's going in a, in a direction that you, you sort of recognize, oh, maybe this isn't so good, then you try to abandon it. And if you see, you see an opportunity to do something nice for somebody else, then you take the opportunity because you recognize that's going to help. That's going to cultivate, uh, that's going to reinforce the wholesome light state.
It sounds simple. I mean, in a way, it is really simple. But it's the practice of a lifetime. And just like learning how to chant a sutta, um, if you stick with it, you practice it methodically, uh, you have a kind of overall big picture of what you're trying to achieve, and you keep reinforcing it, keep reinforcing it, one day the day will come when you can just, you can actually do it. Go through a whole day without getting knocked off your perch, as it were, without the mind getting too too far out of control. Uh, and this is, uh, this is the result of practice. The Buddha's pointing towards a really high goal, uh, enlightenment, Nibbana. Nibbana means uh, something like extinguishment or uh, coolness or going out. Uh, so it, Rec, uh, re, sort of the, the analogy that he often uses the, the idea of a flame or a fire that's burning on, say, some um, pile of wood. It's burning, burning, burning. As long as the fire is burning, it's clinging to the fuel and it's in a, in a state of disturbance. There's constant change and the, you know, the flames are going up and down and there's smoke and there's all this activity. But when the fire goes out, everything just gets really cool. So this coolness is the ability to be with what happens in life, a sense of like anything could happen, even death could come, and it's still going to be okay. Uh, so someone who's, who's got the taste of this coolness um, and starts going and kind of learns how to keep going in that direction in every circumstance, uh, they learn very, it doesn't take very long to pick this up. You start to see how that sense of, it's not indifference. It's, it's very much different than indifference. It's not a, a kind of a thick skinnedness that where nothing can touch me. It's more like a really finely attuned sensitivity to what's going on with, uh, with an, um, a stance of watching what's happening in the mind very carefully and simply keeping the mind on track all the time. Never letting the mind like go off in any of its habitual ruts and get itself into trouble. And always kind of keep it in the in kind of the good, the good way. And it's not that you're you're that this isn't very forceful. It's just sort of you've cultivated a habit of watching what happens, learning from experience, seeing what causes trouble, and learning that I don't like that really it's not so great you know even though it seemed like it was great with uh, if you're not paying too much attention when you really pay close attention you can see what leads to wholesome mind states and what doesn't and you find that you end up having to in a, uh, more or less abandon the same exact things that the buddha is asking us to abandon which is greed hatred and delusion when, when we do that the mind just very naturally cools down and this coolness can go deeper and deeper and deeper, and it becomes more of the preferred state, the place where we like to hang out, the kind of uh, uh, preferred default. And so after a difficult night of maybe some trouble sleeping because the whippoorwills are waking you up, or maybe porcupines come and chew on your kuti at two o'clock in the morning, you, if you do get a little bit of sleep, you don't you don't wake up. You might wake up feeling kind of groggy because you didn't get very much sleep. 
but you won't wake up feeling grouchy or uh, badly done by or uh, poorly served or you won't it, like it won't affect your mood because you don't you haven't allowed your mind to go there uh, you've chosen differently and the, the choice that you're making is a choice towards wholesomeness that has become at a certain eventually becomes a habit uh, the default mode in this Ajahn Chah lineage that this is one of the things that's emphasized over and over again we're when we're practicing uh, even though from time to time in our meditation fantastic things might happen and you know, we might like enter a state of, that we've never entered before the mind might experience some really awesome uh, uh, lights or sounds or visions or um, deep states of complete unmoving calm uh, etc none of those things really last they're not something you can carry around with you. They can they can show you things about what your mind is capable of that you might not have known about before. But what actually counts is how you live your life, the life that you experience, and how other people experience you as well. And that's why ultimately why we're cultivating this path. It's not just for our own happiness, but because a cultivated mind is focused on on wholesome. Uh, ways of conduct, ways of speech. Um, everybody that we're involved with, everybody that we interact with, benefits from that. So we're like, it's like we're making a gift for the entire world. Uh, a gift of kindness, a gift of non-hatred, non-greed, non-delusion. Uh, and that helps uh, our devotion to this truth uh, in a even in a sort of intuitive way or a nonverbal way gets communicated, other people react well to that. Animals react well to that. You know, if you're walking through the forest and you're kind of preoccupied and you're kind of clumping along and everything's like running away <laughs> as you're going through the forest. But if your mind is really cool and you're just sort of very quietly moving through the forest, you know, thinking thoughts of kindness and, and, and not wishing to disturb even the chipmunks, then like the way the animals react is just utterly different. They, they kind of just watch you go by. Um, of course, that's not why we're practicing. We're not practicing so that we can talk to the animals, but maybe there's a side benefit there. We can, uh, other, other beings react well to this kind of cultivation. So that's a, maybe a, a way of getting some, sort of seeing how the practice develops, is it? It, uh, you'll notice more about how others react to you, and that can that can that also can help motivate your practice. A lot of times, you have to ask yourself, "What am I doing?" When you sit down, and why am I doing it? You have to remember, right? Don't, you can't let it just become this sort of habit. Well, it's three o'clock; it's time to sit. That can help get you on the cushion, but still, you have to come back to, "What am I doing? Why am I doing it?" And ultimately, the reasons have to become your own reasons. Dhamma talks and suttas can give you uh, lots of pointers, lots of inspiration. But fundamentally, it has to come down to your own direct understanding that the mind that's not trained, the mind that's not guarded, gets into trouble. And 
that trouble can go really deep. If you look around in the world right now, you can see that there's many, many people whose minds have become so heedless that they're creating tremendous suffering for themselves and tremendous, tremendous suffering for those around them. And there's, you could say, literally no way for them to escape the hole that they've fallen into. Uh, I've had friends who, who became drug addicts who found themselves in a hole they, they could not themselves escape from. There's a saying that you, know, you have to kind of hit bottom. So they, they hadn't come to a place where their suffering was so intense that they recognized that, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Right? And you can't, you can't force somebody else to see that. So, but you can inspire that. Like our actions, our words, our way of being in the world can actually help other people wake up to an alternative way of being. Uh, if, if their mind is getting lost, uh, ourselves being oriented can help others orient. So that's part of the gift that we give when we practice, when we become serious about our practice and take it, take it deeply into our hearts and hold it as the most important thing that we're doing. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? The answer is is in there, in that in that reflection, that that consideration of uh, where every thought goes, how every word affects oneself and others. When that becomes like really, really important, then of course. We're going to guard ourselves. We're going to be really careful not to do anything that's untoward. And that's when, it's, that's when your practice becomes like sort of sacred, sort of uh, holy. The Buddha called it the holy life. Right? So to live the holy life is simply to take it really, really seriously and to, uh, to practice to the best of your understanding uh, as continuously as you can. It doesn't mean that you have to give up anything really other than unwholesome things but uh, you can still live the same place that you've always lived do the same job love the same people uh, take on the same <laughs> new sights I suppose whatever it is that you're doing with your time but with a with an attitude of like watching the mind seeing where it's going and asking yourself regularly what am I doing and why am I doing it and if it's unwholesome see if you can abandon it and if it's wholesome, support it, reinforce it. And then Nibbana comes all by itself. Like you, can't, you can't go find Nibbana. All you can do is practice as best you can. Nibbana will come and find you. So I'll leave that for your reflection. So, it's about three o'clock. Uh, I talked longer than I intended to. <laughs> um, but.